I see a room. Firelight, red carpet, and a man. He's well-dressed, well-spoken, a noble. His clothes are years ago. Blood on his clothes. He is a man who murders. He's a strangler who's escaped from an asylum for the criminally insane. He roams the countryside at night searching for fresh victims, laughing maniacally as he kills them. He is a cursed immortal, existing on violence, fear, dread. It's in the trees! It's coming! The demon! It's coming! Hypnogoria. Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming alive from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely and utterly surrounded by my stuff. This month, I've been sorting out the mountain of DVDs. Remember them? that I've stashed around the den. Here on my right is the great library of RPGs and my grognard files. On my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll, uh, I'll just give it a tap. Ah yes, the eternal champion has appeared as Laura Bellows in the Hammer classic, Dracula AD 1972. This appearance is the favourite of our very special guest, Mr Jim Moon, host of Hypnogoria podcast, the show about all things weird and wonderful. Britain's longest-running horror podcast, it explores the wide and weird world of the macabre. Jim was a real inspiration when I was starting a podcast, and we've been talking for a while about doing something together, about movie drama the BBC Two cult film slot, which ran from 1988 to 2000. We finally got together to look at the first season of films, which were introduced by filmmaker and scholar Alex Cox. Our discussion is not gaming-related, as Movidrome was one of the triggers of my deep freeze beginning. I hit the age of 20 and realised that I had a lot of catching up to do to discover new worlds of cult film. Movidrome was one of my entry points. Sure, I'd always been interested in film, but at this point I became obsessive. It wasn't easy to find cult movies that were beyond the scope of Patel's videos on Crescent Road, but indulge me as I return nostalgically to a starburst memory. I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Mr Moon and that you will seek out Hypnogoria yourself if it isn't already on your podcast holding pattern. I'm joined in the room of role-playing rambling by our resident rules lawyer, Judge Blythe. In keeping with the spirit of Hypnogoria, we're speed rating Vason, the game of Nordic horror produced by Free League in 2020. Blythe has played a lot of it and he has much to say. I'll be back at the end with some parish notices and thanks. Until then, ramblers, 
let's get rambling. Starburst memories. This is a dream come true. My name is Dirt the Dice of the Grognard Files podcast, and I'm in the room of rambling. It's not role-playing this time. We're talking about films, and I've got with me Mr. Jim Moon from Hypnogoria. Hello there, Jim. Hello, and hello, folks at home. I'm absolutely stoked to be here in the room of rambling. We did have to climb over a lot to get in, didn't we? (laughs) (laughs) We did, we did. We're both completely and utterly surrounded by our stuff. So, Jim, for the people at home, let people know what uh, Hypnogoria is all about. It was a website I started devoted to all things weird and wonderful. I started out writing little reviews, and then I got the bug for podcasting, and uh, I've been going 13 years now, which kind of makes me one of the oldest horror podcasts in the UK. I'm one of the dinosaurs. Uh, but yeah, still going strong, covering movies, TV, comics, uh, bits of folklore, yeah, anything weird and wonderful that takes my fancy. And uh, I also it's also expanded to two other shows. I do um, another one, Commentary Club, with my good wife, where we literally talk through a movie and ruin it. Uh, <laughs> where we have a ro- rotating roster, we do a, a cult film, a classic film, and a crap film. Uh, which is a lot of fun. And then I've also got another show called From the Great Library of Dreams, where I read classic bits of weird fiction, which is something I did on the main show, but I kind of hived that off. So people who just want the stories can just have the stories. Yeah, and I was saying to you before we started recording that your podcast was such an inspiration for me and encouraged me to start podcasting. And I urge anybody who hasn't listened to it to go out and, and have a listen. If you, if you were starting, where would you recommend people to start? Um, well, if you go to my website, hypnogoria.com, I've done that many shows. I don't actually have a full list of episodes, but I have sorted out bunches of episodes into different series. So I've done a, ser- a history of uh, the zombie movies. I'm, doing, I'm currently still... Getting to the end of finishing a series on the history of universal horror, or this like a big section just devoted to cult TV show and children's book box of delights. And uh, you can find like story readings or bits on folklore, or bits on weird telly or comics or, or games, which I've covered as well. And you can just there's a nice selection there on the, the main page on the website, and you can go just dive in and have a nice selection on a theme of your choice. It's, uh, it's a kind of podcast with the word potpourri is uh, invented for, isn't it? Very much so, very much so. Yeah. If I could recommend one, I would definitely recommend uh, your coverage of uh, Fighting Fantasy. There's some great insights in uh, that podcast in particular, and uh, there is a very, very funny moment, which I won't ruin for people, <laughs> uh, but yes. But we're here today to talk about films. And in particular, uh, movie drone. For people who uh, are not sure what movie drone uh, is, uh, Jim, what, how would you summarise it? Um, well, kind of in the seventies and the eighties, BBC Two, which is kind of the artier of the main terrestrial BBC channels, often used to do seasons of films, and say like they do a, a season of say late night showing like Hitchcock, or they do a season of Chaplin. I mean, when I was growing up, they showed all the Basil Rathbone. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, um, and they showed all the old Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan. And um, it was pretty very, very popular, these sort of themed, sort of curated sort of collections. It became more and more of a thing. Uh, in the late 70s, they started doing late-night horror double bills on BBC Two on a Saturday, which were tremendously important to, well, a couple of generations of young 
young film geeks growing up where they'd always show a creaky old black and white one and then a colour one that was often a bit racier and a bit gorier. But they were tremendous fun and kind of that sort of drew to a close sort of in the mid-80s. After a fallow couple of years, something else came along. It was almost like cult film scheduling had grown up with the audience uh, because this one's Sunday nights. It was hosted by cult film director himself, Alex Cox. And it was called Movie Drome. And every Sunday night, he would introduce and present uh, a series of cult movies um, in his own inimitable style, which I will now badly imitate. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Movie Drome. Tonight, we've got a film <laughs> which you won't have heard of, but I have, so that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Yes. And uh, this proved to be very popular, and it actually ran for years and years. I mean, um, there were fairly extensive seasons running for like a good three, four months. And then he'd come back, have a break, then he'd come back the following year with another tranche of like really weird films often you'd never heard of. So it ran and ran, and eventually he was replaced by another up and coming sort of critic, Mark Cousins. And I think it finally ended in the late 90s. It, it ran for a tremendously long time. And, um, I was surprised how long it had run when I looked back. But then again, I do remember always watching, oh, it's on Movie Drone this week. Have I seen that? Have I even heard of that? <laughs> Am I going to watch that? Set the video. It's fair to say that Mark Cousins had his distinctive style as well, didn't he? He did. That's quite a soporific, uh, oh, the seriousness oh. of this. Uh, <laughs> it, kind of, it kind of didn't it didn't speak. He mumbled in a kind of Irish lilt. It was. Yeah. It was like ASMR. I think at the end of the 80s, it was incredibly influential on me, uh, Movie Drome. I was 20 at that time, and it was big part of my film education I think it uh, Cox's introductions to begin with as you say they were a bit disjointed and it, for some reason they had like a a weird late night saxophone uh, blowing <laughs> over and these little and, and he was in a motel room set well that's right and, or in the middle of a desert or or somewhere somewhere really weird and kind of like nothing to do with the film either it was like it was just wherever he was at the time and he had a cameraman said like we'll do it here then. But over time, they definitely got more and more fluent, and he started to introduce to me at least uh, some of the language of cinema and start to point out things just in these little five-minute introductions uh, with a directorial eye, but also with a, a critical eye. He was no, he wasn't coming on uh, pitching for the films, was he? He was he he, he had a. It gave a critique rather than a, 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 a showman's. You know, this film's great. You have to watch this film. It was. It, it, it's much more balanced and nuanced than that. It's very much kind of almost like kind of the introduction you'd probably get from a lecture at film school. This is a film. This is when it was made. Now watch out for this. You might find this, but watch out for that. And it, it was actually a very good way to set you up for the kind of film you're going into and kind of what sort of angle to approach it from. Uh, I think it was very, very helpful. And I say, I, I learnt so much about movies watching these strange offerings because when it started out, it was like, cult movies, we were going, yes, we're going to get some science fiction, we're going to get some horror, we'll get some men with rubber swords, this is going to be brilliant. But a lot of the films were actually really, really cult and kind of cult maybe only among film students, you know what I mean? It's kind of, here's a movie, Marlon Brando's only movie he made. 
or here's a bizarre western starring Joan Crawford, or, or you know, um, here's Brad Dourif as an insane preacher who gets obsessed with cars. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of all these really strange films. And um, I remember kind of Saturday night was our role-playing night where we'd go around to our friend's house who um, he had a, had a dining room with a big dining room table. But on Sunday nights was like we do character gen, but or work on our rubbish fanzine we did back in the day, <laughs> a doomed dwarf's <laughs> journal. But so me and my friend Gabby sort of, I'd go around and draw some stuff for him, help with layouts, and then we'd watch movie drove, and the dad was going like, "What the hell did we just watch?" But I think it's it's worth pointing out that at this time um, in the UK, there was only four channels um, to to watch and. You kind of heard about these uh, cult movie uh, cable channels over in the US, mm. and it felt like you were getting a little bit of that, a little hint of that, um, this uh, strand of uh, programming. I got quite excited by because that, that's the thing, isn't it? There wasn't, there wasn't a great deal of variety on UK television at that time. I think Sky started a year later, didn't it, uh, in 89. Um, but this gave us a flavour of what specialist cable channels would be like very much so and i think even then it was still quite ahead of what cable television would be delivering in the early days at least where it tended to be very populist i mean the kind of films you get on movie drome were the kind of films you'd normally only catch at an art house cinema on first run <laughs> and uh, yes yeah. and you know there weren't in the main films you'd say find on video down the local blockbuster or you even considered to be shown on t most TV stations. I mean, the only sort of place you'd see films like this was kind of at, like specialist cinemas, like a, the famous ones like, you know, The Scala in London. I'd heard about had these sort of legendary uh, film nights of showing double and treble bills of weird, weird movies you'd never heard of. And this was kind of, it had that sort of vibe, you know what I mean? Of um, It was like a, every Sunday night, a little art house cinema opened up in your own living room at late night when everyone else had gone to bed and you should be going to bed because it was a school night or you had work but you didn't care because you would never get a chance to see something like this again well certainly that's how it was at the time I mean now you can get all of these two clicks probably in 4k <laughs> on a 60 yes. set but you know that's the Marvel marvels of the 20th century where appalling films like Invasion of the Blood Farmers has got a high definition 4k restoration <laughs> Yeah, that, that's a very good point that about the uh, cinemas because around this time, I think uh, due in no small part to uh, this season of films, it gave me the confidence to start going to uh, places where they screened more uh, cult films. So in Manchester, Corner House opened in 85, but I only just started going around uh, 88. And in Liverpool, there was the 051, and I, that's where I got most of my film education, uh, spending all day when I should have been <laughs> at college in uh, 051, watching Taxi Driver and uh, all these new Hollywood uh, films um, that were be being shown because they seemed to get a new lease of life in the 80s, and um, thematically some of these films in the first season owe a certain debt to that new Hollywood uh, period, definitely, don't they? Definitely, definitely. I was much the same because it wasn't after long after movie drove kind of um, my friend Gavin passed his driving test and we discovered there was an art house cinema in Newcastle about 30, 35 minutes drive away at the Tyneside Cinema. 
And that was always, nearly every week, had some sort of late night, midnight showing. And they had regular like, Rocky showings, things like Rocky Horror. Uh, but they'd have really weird double bills, like Sid and Nancy and Cat People. <laughs> You know, films that, yeah. that don't belong together at all to to any to anyone else's mind, but to a film buff's mind, it's two great films from two different eras. But you don't care the two different genres, and that, that movie drone was very much like that. You might have an expected cult film one week, and then next week you'd be somebody you'd be going, "What the hell is that?" And uh, of course, Sid and Nancy's one of uh, Alex Cox's absolutely uh, films, yes, yeah. I've got his uh, quote that he made to help define uh, what would be included in the uh, season. So I thought it'd be useful for me just to read that and to see whether we can uh, take... Uh, we, we agree with this uh, description of what a cult film is. So what is a cult film? Well, a cult film is one that has a passionate following but does not appeal to everyone. James Bond are not cult films, but chainsaw movies are. Just because a film has become a cult movie does not automatically guarantee quality. Some are very bad. Others are very, very good. Some of them make an awful lot of money at the box office. Others make no money at all. Some are considered quality films. Others are exploitation movies. One thing that cult films do have in common is that they're all genre films. For example, gangster films or westerns. They also have a tendency to slosh over from one genre to another, so that a science fiction film might be a detective movie, or vice versa. They share common themes as well, themes that are found in all drama. Love, murder and greed. So what do you think that as that as a description of uh, cult movies, do you think uh, that captures it? Um, it's pretty good. I mean, it's one of those things, defining a cult film is tricky. I mean, on Commentary Club, we take turns to pick a film and surprise each other. And my wife always moans when it's cult film time because it's kind of a, what, what is cult? Because, I mean, with Movie Drome, so we... The very first movie in the very first season Alex Cock picked was The Wicker Man, which at that point in the 80s was very much a cult film. It had died at the box office. It had never had a re-release. It had gone through some awful cuts that had been released that made the film unintelligible in the, U- in the US. Um, it had been occasionally shown on late-night TV, and it had picked up a following of people going, this movie's actually pretty good. Um, and when it was shown a movie drone, it was still very much just considered, oh, this is one of those films those, those horror movie people go on about. Um, but like now, it's regarded as a true classic of British cinema. And it's kind of that, I mean, that's, that's gone from n- being a nothing film that failed to developing a cult to becoming popular to becoming you know, kind of enshrined in the canon. So I think it's very difficult to define cult films, and especially nowadays when people make films with an eye to being cult in the first place. It's like I'd argue most of the films that have come out of trauma, bar the first few, aren't cult films because they were made with a to try and be cult films. And that's it's like being cool. You can't declare yourself cool. It must be conferred upon you. <laughs> 
Like, exactly. Like cult yeah. films yeah. are kind of like that. That's very true, isn't it? Since the 90s, um, many films have had a knowing w- a glint in their eye, haven't they, as they've been producing these films with an eye to becoming a uh, cult. It's, it, it's quite interesting that the when they showed uh, The Wicker Man, um, as part of movie drama, it was the first time that it was a restored mm. print with some of the things that were cut out of the original. It wasn't the entire print because, as you know, it, much of that was recovered in the uh, late nineties. But this was like the first showing of uh, an extended cut. Well, that's it. I, I videoed the Wicker Man when it'd been on TV a couple of years earlier, and then I'd seen a shorter version. On, I, on, on a different ITV station, <laughs> and there's kind of scenes missing and scenes in the wrong order. And then when the movie drone came on, it's kind of like, oh my god, this thing, these, these things I've not seen in either version were in there as well. And it would be another, I think, another four or five years, mid 90s, we actually got kind of the, the almost complete as you can cut, uh, the director's cut, you know, available on DVD. So, I mean, Alex Cox did. Did a lot more than just sort of go through the archive saying, you know, well, what have we got and what can we afford? You know, I mean, he really actually tried to get you decent copies uh, of the film. I know that in the first season, there's a Marlon Brando movie, the one he directed, and that had fallen into public domain. And most of the prints of it knocking around were absolutely awful. You know what I mean? But he actually got a pretty decent one. <laughs> so he really sort of did a lot of work behind the scenes to really give you a proper you know, curated collection and find the best print you could. Yeah. That's what one eye jacks, That's isn't it? That's it, yes, uh, yeah. Brando mm. films, yeah. Yeah. I, the, the bit I take exception with the um, cult film uh, description is this idea that uh, they're all genre films because there are non-genre films in this this season. Definitely. I, I, you struggle You struggle to... what. How would you define uh, Fat City, for example? I've, I've, I've heard like a neo-noir, but to me it's just a, a, a drama, isn't it? Basically, it's kind of, I don't mean sound demeaning, but it's kind of like an art house Rocky. It's a, yes, it's, it's, it's it's a boxing movie, but it's one, it's not like Rocky or The Champ. It, it, it's really, it's scrubbed clean of any kind of sentiment. And the usual, you know, beats of a sports movie have been really cut out with a laser and instead you've got what well, is a lot of extended character studies that um of, of people in terrible situations in run-down places you know just struggling to get by and um i say i mean you could say as a genre it's an art house drama really um i mean because i would argue that you know there's something like art house is almost a genre in itself more, yeah, more so now cool. than back then uh, I think things have ossified in this in a strange way in the last well few years certainly of uh, and now if you say cult film people think oh it's going to be sci-fi horror or fantasy that's that's what cult yeah. is means to most people it's that spaceman crap it's people with swords and monsters in it but actually you know cult yeah. films are a very broad palette anything can be a cult film it just has to have somehow ended up in that strange headspace where it alienates most people, but some people go, yes, that's it. I love that. That's That's got something. Yeah. And a, a couple of years ago, I started uh, watching these films in the order that 
they were broadcasting movie drama. <laughs> and a bit like you, Jim, I like to curate my home <laughs> viewing and make sure that I have my little mini season. <laughs> so as a challenge, I started to uh, watch these in order. And I have to say that Fat City is uh, a film that I didn't remember from the original se- viewing of it. But it, that was the one that really got to me. And I thought, this is a great movie. This is a fantastic, it's often overlooked, isn't it? Because it was in that period of uh, new Hollywood and there's probably more well-known films uh, from that era. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible film. Yeah, because I caught it, um, I think, where, where did make it? I think it was in Lancaster, an art house film showed, an art house cinema showed it in the 90s. I remember seeing it on movie drama. Oh, that'll be worth seeing on the big screen. You know, I thought, well, a bit depressing, actually. But, well, you know, what the hell? <laughs> but I, I thought it was a really good movie and I kind of really got, you know, just the, the whole title sums up the idea of Fat City. People, you know, they want to get to the good life, you know what I mean? And uh, But they're never going <laughs> to, almost, no, you know what I mean? No. And the fact that it doesn't have that happy endings. There are resolutions, yeah. but, you know what I mean, there's no magic wand all the nastiness yeah. is going to go away now at the end. I, I really appreciate that. And it's something we don't see enough of, really. We often yeah. see a lot of nihilistic endings, which is kind of the anti, you know, magic one. Just everyone dies, boo-hoo. It's horrible, isn't it? Yes, yes, it was. But you don't often get that kind of, where people just tie up a storyline dramatically and leave it at that without, yes. without going one yeah. way or the other. And it is an incredible ending as well, the way that he does it. We won't spoil it for people, but it's a bit of a, a cinematic masterclass, really, at the Definitely. end. Definitely. And I love, I, I love that opening, the opening scenes with uh, Jeff Bridges and Stacey Keach sparring, that metaphor of, uh, you know, the downtrodden Keach <laughs> and the uh, plucky ups, uh, youngster. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> And obviously with Hypnogoria, um, if you were uh, plucking out from um, this first season, what would be Hypnogoric films from this collection? We mentioned The Wicker Man. Well, it's always The Wicker Man, but, but you've got the original Fly and the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And Body Snatchers is a very interesting movie with its subtext. But probably the most Hypnogoric. Uh, well, no, there's The Man Who Fell to Earth as well. But, but there's one, I mean, I just recently got hold of um, a lovely restored cut of it, um, The Long Hair of Death with Barbara Steele. Oh, yes, Barbara Steele. Um, yeah, fantastic. And, and that's a cracking movie because at first it sounds like your sort of typical 60s hammer horror gothic setup. You know, there's, there's a witch, she's going to be burnt, she's, uh, she is burnt and she lays a curse on the nobleman who did it and his descendants. And you think, oh, yes, I know where we're going with this. It's all in a moody castle several years later. She's going to come back from the grave and bump them off and it'll be all creepy and eerie. But the movie doesn't actually play out like that. And it ends up something almost Hitchcockian in a medieval castle where people are scheming and conniving and getting more and more paranoid <laughs> as, as they're getting, they're trying to do each other over. I mean, I'm sorry not to give away any plot spoilers, but it's a really fascinating film. It's beautifully shot, really well acted, but it's about you start off with something very gothic, but then you, you end up with something that almost feels very modern, this kind of a psychological thriller. And, uh, it's like just, Really well performed, um, especially as several characters sort of 
seemingly begin to disintegrate under the psychological pressure. It feels like a Mario Brava film, but it isn't Mario Brava, is it, who uh, directed it? No, no. It's a, it owes a lot to Brava's Black Sunday. And indeed, if you look at the, yeah. the subplot synopsis, you think, hang on, isn't this Black Sunday again? <laughs> Italian ripping each other themselves off. Now, this is Antonio Margaretti. Uh, he went on to have a long career in uh, Italian cult movies. This is one of his best, actually. But if I remember right, he also really did some good giallos as well. And this has a very giallo uh, feel. He also did some bloody appalling things as well a bit later on, like Your Hunter from the Future, <laughs> which is one of the weirder and worse Conan ripoffs. Cox recommended the Western that he made with uh, Klaus Kingsley as well. Death in the Wind. Yes, yeah. Yeah, which is quite an unusual Western. There's quite a Western um, feel to quite a f- few of these, isn't there? The, well, even if you've got the Peter Fonda w- film, uh, Hired Hands, I do remember watching that one vividly because it was kind of, we kind of knew Peter Fonda was this sort of counterculture icon. And at that stage, we were just discovering the music press and discovering 60s sort of music and, Easy Rider was kind of the film we wanted to see. But this was a film Peter Fonda made after Easy Rider. So, well, right, it's a Western. I don't care. We'll give it a go. Uh, that's an interesting movie. I think in many ways it got short shrift at the time. But there's a lot of it in there that when I think back to it is kind of, it will be done again to greater acclaim by Clint Eastwood in The, in the Unforgiven. Um, that mm. idea of the, the the truth of the West and the... The sort of corrosive effect of a violent lifestyle, and you know the it's not all six guns and trick shots. It's actually you know people dying in the dust, often for stupid and pointless reasons. Yeah, because around that time, wasn't it when um, uh, Universal and these main studios were giving uh, money to in- individual auteur uh, directs after Easy Rider and uh, giving money to. Um, produce things and uh, this is what Peter Fonda came out and I, I didn't um, what was it that uh, Dennis Hopper did the last uh, movie show was it oh and, yes I think yeah. This, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. which is crazy that's, that's, yeah. A, yeah. that's a mad film <laughs> yes <laughs> it's also why the yeah. monkeys and movie the, head is so bizarre as well because they gave them the money and, and let, them, let them loose yeah and, and although, you know, there's some pretty classic Westerns like The Good, The Bad and The Ugly and, um, as we mentioned, One-Eyed Jacks and there's the John Crawford unusual one, Johnny Guitar. But there's also uh, Electrogliding Blue, which is in Arizona and that's got a real Western feel to it. And uh, that's another film that when I watched it um, again as part of this uh, movie drum rewatch, that's a quite a striking film as well. It really well done and uh, unusual film. Well, that was one I was really excited to see because um, in the second Judge Dredd annual in 1982, they did a little feature about sort of films about um, cops and vehicles. And they mentioned obviously Mad Max, but um, the other film they mentioned was uh, Electro Guide in Blue, which just, that's a wonderful title. And, uh, you know, he didn't really say much about it, but, you know, he's a cop and he's, you know, hunting a criminal and there's a cool picture of Robert Blake on this, you know, vintage 70s, beautiful, beautiful uh, police motorcycle and electric riding blue. You think, yeah, this is the film for me. And then when it, when it came on the TV, I must admit, it was kind of a bit kind of 
that wasn't really what I was expecting. <laughs> um, but I did really like it though, because I think kind of, I had seen some spaghetti westerns and it had that same sort of mood and vibe and that sort of attention to realism and grittiness. But at the same time with those yes. sort of panoramic landscapes. Uh, it's a great movie. That was genuinely very cult up into the 90s. It seems to have dropped off the radar a bit recently, which is a shame because it's an absolutely fantastic film. I mean, if people like things like um, No Country for Old Men, you know, go mm. see Electric Light in Blue because that's very much, you know, informing that the, you know, those sort of modernist sort of uh, sort of bleak visionary movies. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a reactionary um, response to... Easy ride in a way as well, isn't it? Well, very much um, so, because instead of like going across America with a, you know, a ton of money made from drugs, you've got a cop hunting down <laughs> a bunch of hippies, basically. <laughs> Some yes, of which were the yeah. band Chicago, I discovered much later on, who were actually extras in the film as well, as well as doing the music. <laughs> it's kind of really yeah, cause soft think- rockers Chicago, these scuzzy hippies. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think the um, I think the director I forget his name now. Um, he was actually the manager of Chicago. It's the only film that he made. Yes. He was a record mm. producer, and um, yeah, I think <laughs> uh, he, he fell out with filmmaking. But he uh, yeah, he he made sure that the band had uh, plenty of opportunities. I think he went on to um, uh, manage the Beach Boys in the late seventies or something <laughs> like that. But and turned his back on film. But this is his only film that he made. Well, that's often the way with cult films. There are often these, these one-off movies that people struggle to get made and often thought, you know, that's it, I'm done now. <laughs> or, you know, they lost now, a lot of money and it only much later on would pay for itself. And now there's no, nothing I like more than a good uh, monster movie. Uh, unfortunately... Uh, Razorback uh, isn't a great monster movie. No, I wanted to like Razorback. I've always wanted to like Razorback, but <laughs> it just doesn't really work. I, I, I definitely think you should suggest that for your uh, for your podcast at your commentary club. If it comes on streaming, we will. Because my wife's a nazi, so. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> we do we do like to do, yeah. do some exploitation uh, because you know, she has a different take on these things because she saw them in context at the time, you know. But, but yeah, same director as Highlander and uh, hard to believe, but also same director as Highlander too, and that's much easier to believe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this this is a a rampaging. Um, well, it's a pig, isn't it? Well, it's a pig, a, a wild yeah. pig. Yeah, that's uh, terrorizing the eight bank. <laughs> It's a strange concept, and it is kind of, you know, should we do something like Jaws? Yeah. What should we use? How about a pig? Okay. (laughs) What? I didn't know there were wild boars in Australia. (laughs) Well, there is now. (laughs) I mean, the creature itself, when you see it, is kind of like, it is a thing to behold. It looks like something has come off a heavy metal album cover, you know what I mean? There's more than, more yeah, than a touch of a Motorhead's logo in it. Because <laughs> I'm looking at going, first time watching it, is it part robot? There seems to be some chrome in there somewhere. And the, and the way the whole thing's shot actually is reminiscent of a, 
rock uh, video, you know, the, that style of uh, filmmaking from the 80s that came pr- uh, prominent where, they, you know, there was um, bright lights and people in silhouette and that oh, kind of thing. crash zoom, people swinging the camera around and, you know, a few more guitar solos. And I think might have helped, actually. <laughs> <laughs> There's occasionally a shot of Slash on 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 a rock playing away, enliven the movie. So it's one of the films where you start going, "Can I see the pig now?" (laughs) One of the things that um, Cox says about this season, because inevitably, when you put a season together of these films, I'm going to reveal something to you, uh, Jim, that you you may not know uh, about about these uh, these seasons. But when you when you see all these films together, they're quite diverse and different, but you inevitably try to look for thematic connections, don't mm. you? And um you, you, it, what uh, Cox says is that these films are about uh, murder and greed uh, as a kind of a common theme running running through them. Um and do you think do you think that is there any other themes that you can uh, spot within them any commonalities? Uh, there's definitely a lot of murder in them <laughs> but a lot of them have a strong sense of landscape as well which I think um, and it was very I mean I think he also he, he had a very good director's eye he picked a lot of films with a strong visual look um, Razor Black is a terrible monster movie but it does look good <laughs> Big Wednesday the surfer movie has some fantastic sequences even though perhaps the the cast weren't really up to delivering the drama. Um, <laughs> going back in time, you wouldn't do a serious drama with Jan Michael Vincent and William Cat. <laughs> yeah. well, Gary Boosie. Gary, Gary Boosie. Yeah. He always steals a shot, well, doesn't he? Always gives 110%, whether you want him to or not. <laughs> <laughs> you have to sand the seat marks out the, foot, out the set later on, but he will deliver. Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to make the revelation and see if this uh, changes your outlook. Um, Alex Cox did not choose these films. Ah, interesting. Yeah, so um, what happened was uh, the BBC had um, all of these films on the uh, books, on the catalogue, uh, under licence. And uh, producer Nick Jones just like kind of cobbled them together and thought, where, where are we going to show these? At what point are we going to show Razor uh, back uh, alongside um, One from the Heart, Francis Ford Coppola's Mm. uh, musical of burlesque? And so he came up with this idea of having a cult film segment and he hired um, Cox in to uh, present them. And I think that is Cox is great because he actually makes it appear curated yes in, mm. and you know with his introductions <laughs> he does make it he gives the illusion of this being hand-picked and uh, uh selected for your entertainment uh, <laughs> really really works but it's yeah it was a bbc producer nick uh, nick jones who uh, chose them all oh that's amazing was, um did that remain the case in later seasons because i imagine they They'd always had so many films they'd licensed as part of a bundle, and they were thinking, we can never show this in an ordinary slot. (laughs) But we have to get value for money for the license payer. (laughs) Exactly. I think later on, um, you're right, they did, and I think particularly when um, Mark Cousins was um, doing it. But I think what that allowed was that idea that... uh, 
Cox could be quite critical about some mm. of the films. So, f- for example, the introduction to uh, Diva, you know, is quite disparaging <laughs> about the whole artifice mm. of it and its kind of lack of uh, humanity and uh, you know this kind of commercial eye that it's uh, done uh, done with. So, I think. Um, him having that distance from the films that have been picked really added to it in some way. Well, I think it's also got that sort of diversity as well of um, uh, kind of a really interesting mix of movies um, that you wouldn't necessarily put together. I always remember with Movie Drome, it always went beyond the standard, easy definition of a cult film. And you would get these sort of genuine curios in there. And I always sort of like that, and I like that kind of grab bag aesthetic. You're not always going to get something what you want, or something you'd have chosen for yourself. Uh, but often, some of the more obscure films were the most rewarding to watch. Absolutely, yeah. I think I think you're dead right. Yeah, and I think um, I love um, as doing armchair curation of uh, seasons and uh, if you were looking at this uh, season Jim and you had to uh, pick out three that you were going to put as your hypnagoria season uh, which are the three that you would pick? Oh I definitely have long hair of death I'd probably do The Man to Fel- Who Fell to Earth because I think that's a film a lot of sci-fi fans and a lot of music fans come to oh it's about a spaceman or it's got David Bowie in it and you sit down and watch it and you get this weird Nick Road film and go I'm a bloody hell what was that <laughs> I'm really settled and confused uh, so I definitely pick that because I think that's one that's a film you should go and back be- to certainly I, the, f- and the best the best the best Bowie performance I would say best um, acting definitely um, I mean I think it's such a striking and weird film but it is kind of if you if you're there to see a pop star in a movie, or you're there to see a you know a film about a spaceman comes to Earth, and you're as, at a young age, shall we say, it will completely blow your mind. To quote Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> but I'd say definitely pick that one as that one is say it's one to go back to. Um, but the other one I said pick for um, it's not bloody Razorback, and not the Wicker Man because it's too <laughs> obvious. But I would I would go for Barbarella. Um, because mm-hmm. that's um, that's a very sort of fun movie, and but it's also very rooted in kind of the European science fiction comics tradition. And for like a show like mine, where I really like to not just review a film, but put it into its context and dig out, you know, where it came from, what its influences were. Barbarella is a really interesting one because you know it opens up this whole thing that, you know, unbeknown to most of us, Francis ish huge comics tradition and a huge comics industry that we're largely unaware of bar Tintin and Asterix. <laughs> but, they, you know, they have an incredibly rich, uh, you know, a uh, comics tradition and they were doing mind-blowing, you know, science fiction comics in the in back in the 50s even and it was in the heyday in the 60s and the 70s. And Barbarella opens all that up and it's actually a lot of that's all there in, in the feel and look of it as well. So that would be, that'd be my third pick. Yeah, Barbarella is one of those films that I thought I knew, uh, but when rewatching it uh, as part of this uh, exercise, I realised that I didn't know it at all, and um, I'd either uh, pushed to the back of my mind or 
uh, never seen before the scary dolls with uh, teeth. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of very striking imagery in there. I mean, I think Barbara often gets a bit short shrift because people, oh, it's just Jane Fonda being scantily clad in the Flash Gordon ripoff. But it, there's so much more to that movie. It's a lot crazier. And um, I don't know. They say, I think they say that it's, a, it's another film that I think it's almost became too cult and too, everyone knows it's sort of second hand through homages and ripoffs. But people should go back to the original. Yeah, def- definitely. I think of uh, my uh, top uh, three, I've already mentioned uh, Fat City, but I know that when I saw The Last Picture Show as part of this uh, back in 88, that because I think it's because of the age I was at, that had a kind of lasting effect. And I did seek out Bogdanovich's other films and his writing uh, as a result of uh, seeing that film. Because I think at the time you knew um, Sybil Shepherd from her appearances on Moonlighting and a uh, kind of frivolous uh, figure, but in that she, she gives a great performance and uh, as do all the uh, actors in it, it's quite a, a striking film. And again, with a kind of Western sensibility, it feels like a big John Ford movie about um, children in a in a town that's dying. In a really. Town, yeah, yeah, a dying uh, town. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember that vividly because I remember kind of coming on it. I say moonlighting was like kind of at its height when this was screened, and a lot of people tuned into Civil like, Shepherd, and I heard it's a bit rude, and it is a bit rude. You'll see her do things that you thought you wanted to see, but not like that. <laughs> it yes, won't be exciting yeah. or erotic. It likes to be rather depressing. <laughs> make you question your yeah. life choices. <laughs> yeah, but that's why it's a brilliant film. I mean, uh, um, and, and, and the other film I choose um, out of these is uh, Parallax View, <sighs> which I think is a remarkable study of American paranoia and uh, just a general uh, uh, peak of uh, 70s uh, cinema. It, that's a fantastic film. I know that made a big impression of on us. I mean, I know in a great many of our role-playing games afterwards started featuring shadowy assassination agencies for months. <laughs> Huge, bleak conspiracies you couldn't get out of. But, uh, I mean, I, I saw that again fairly recently and I was struck by just what a what a good movie it is. It, it, at the time, it got short shrift because it felt it was a bit, being a bit too real. It's a bit slow, but I kind of like that and I like the grittiness and the believability. And, um, and it's actually, I think, Warren Beatty's best performance. Uh, it's the film everyone forgets and somewhat overshadowed by his own reputation as a heartthrob. But, you know, on his day, he could put in a very powerful performance. And he's brilliant in the parallax for you. You forget it's Warren Beatty completely. Uh, and they say it's such a gorgeous slice of that sort of 70s anxiety and paranoia and intrigue. Def- definitely. And... Um- as we come to uh, the close, I'd like you to have a look at this list. And of the um, films that are in here, if you could replace one with an equivalent, uh, what would you what would you do, and what would be your rationale for doing it? Ooh, um, I put you. I know it is. It is. I'm just looking through which, which one I get rid of. Razorback. Yeah, I got my eye on you. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, no, I'm, uh, the thing I think it's actually missing, 
is is a good seventies um, Italian movie, and I swap out Razorback for an early seventies um, pseudo giallo. It was an Italian American co production, and it has, it has some American stars like Martin Landau as in guest roles. Um, it's got various names like a mag. <laughs> One's got like. It's some variation on Magnum Force, the Cashing on Dirty Harry. But it's proper type, these strange shadows in an empty room. And it's about a cop investigating um, the death of his daughter. Um, and basically, he's like a typical 70s cop. He's not going to stop for anybody. And his first line of questioning is to smack someone in the mouth. <laughs> and he basically <laughs> brawls and fights his way and intimidates and bullies people until he unravels what really happened. Well, there is another killer on the loose, seemingly bumping off witnesses. And it features one of the most amazing car chases I've ever seen. I mean, where people talk about the war in Bullet. That's nothing compared in this movie, where you have a guy, he, the cops chasing a guy he wants to question. And they literally drive their cars until... They're smoking wrecks of battered metal. <laughs> it's incredible movie, and no one's heard of it. But that—that's my pick. Strange Shadows in Empty Room. It was actually on Strange Shadows. Yeah, it yeah. was on Amazon Prime until uh, fairly recently. To look, um, that's where I first found it. But it, in the way of things, it probably will turn up again on another streaming service. But I, I highly recommend it. I mean, um, it was—it was a film I watched. I couldn't believe what I was watching. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a very good murder mystery as well, um, and actually has a, a good deal of social commentary baked into it as well, as well as being just stupidly violent. <laughs> well, I'm going to I'm going to be uh, controversial, and um, the opening film, I'm going to switch out the Wicker Man, and the reason I say that is because I think it has become very familiar, hasn't it? Definitely, uh, the Wicker Man. definitely. Um, and um, perhaps a little overexposed as a cult movie. Um, and it obviously uh, was originally played in a double bill. And I would say that the film that it um, <laughs> appeared alongside is a much superior film, and that's Don't Look Now. Yes, which yes. Which is uh, a, a great film uh, set in Venice with uh, Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland as uh, grieving parents. And um, him realizing that he has powers, yes. or he doesn't realize <laughs> he, he doesn't realize he has powers. He's ignorant of his uh, mm. powers, uh, but it's a uh, it, that is a remarkable movie and probably one of my all-time favorites. Don't look now. So well, there's, yeah, a certain, there's a certain out, scene uh, in it my... that will stay with you forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jim. It's been great uh, talking to you about uh, Movie Drum. We'll, we'll have to get back together and do another scene. Absolutely. I'd love to do that. There's a, an excuse to rewatch some of these films as well. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. And um, just to uh, remind everybody, where will they find Hypnogoria? Uh, well, you can find everything I do, including all the podcasts and various bits of writing I do as well, at hypnogoria.com, which is arranging to handy, hopefully, easy to navigate sections. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much, Jim. My pleasure, and sir. all the best. Speed rating.
Welcome to the room of role-playing rumbling. I've got Blythe with me. I'm on Blythe. Hello, Dip. I feel, Blythe, like we should be in a wainscoted room with wooden panelling and <laughs> a leather button chair <laughs> with a fire raging mm. and a big balloon glass of brandy. <laughs> and a cigar. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you feel that? Because Vason. We're going to talk about Vason. Ah. Is it Vason? Vassen. Oh, Vassen. I don't know. It's Vassen. Vassen. It's a lot. It's, I mean, you know what we're like with pronunciations. We struggle the best of times. I, <laughs> I think we just settle on one. Vason. We're taking on Vason, even though I, I've heard, I think it's Vassen. But that, who knows? We'll stick who with cares? our long People know what we're talking about. Yeah. And I can't offer you a brandy. No. We're back in the stock cupboard, aren't we? The work stock cupboard. Yeah. yeah, there is no brandy. There probably is a bottle of brandy in here. There's still, I see the Robinson's fruit cordial is still there. It has for 15 years. For 15 and I noticed, years, yeah. I've noticed disturbingly that the tide mark has moved a little. Someone's had some of the yeah. out of date cordial. Yeah, in yeah. the middle over the Christmas break, they've come in here. I thought, <laughs> I want a taste of summer. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Even if it's out of, an out of date summer, it doesn't matter. There's some, another strange thing. Come in the corner. Yeah. What's that? It's like a big. I thought it was a big drainage pole at the first, like a a big brush. But uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, what a strange thing! It's, it's, this works well on the podcast, doesn't it? People, <laughs> what the hell are they talking about? It looks like a quick release Christmas tree, doesn't it? As if you push a button, and all the stem, all the what what branches oh. come out yeah. all of a sudden. <laughs> A big flu, a big flu. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Vason. I know that this is a game that you're mm. particularly enthusiastic about. I like Vason, I do. Because I you, do. you've run it quite a lot as mm. one-shots. I think you've played this... I have not played this a lot with you other than that short campaign, but you've played it a lot, haven't you? Out yeah, I've, only, I've been a player once at Grogmeet. That was the first time I've been a player, but I've run it a lot. I've run it a lot. I've run it at a few conventions, yeah. Yeah. I really like it. It's my, it's probably, well, not probably. I think it is my favourite free league game. Right. By somewhere. I like Tales from the Loop. But I think, uh, Vason is my favourite. For yeah. reasons we may get into. Yeah. So just so that it, it, people are aware of it, mm. it, um, it came out, when did it come out? About two or three years ago? Two or three years ago. Mm, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it was a Kickstarter. Did you go into the Kickstarter? No, I didn't go into the Kickstarter. I bought it. Um, it was a lockdown purchase. It was one of the crazy lockdown purchases that paid off. It was one of those purchases where I'd, I'd seen, I'd heard about Vason, and I think I bought Tales from the Loop, and I liked the system, and I thought, well, I'll buy Vason. I went all in, bought the Games Master screen, as you do, yeah. and the funny dice. It might have been some kind of deal on Freely. You know, they do these yeah. deals every now and again. So I bought it. That's how I bought it. I bought the, the rules, the Games Master screen, some dice. The cards? Did you get Yeah, that? I got the cards as well. Yeah, I think it was a package thing, you know, yeah. dis- slight discounts on it, that kind of thing. I think it's a great game. And it's, uh, for, for those who don't know it, it's a kind of gothic. It's described as gothic horror, isn't it? Yeah. Although Nordic gothic. Nordic gothic horror, which I, but I suppose the horror thing is, is debatable because I think you can dial that up. There's a bit, there's a bit of whimsy to it as well, isn't there? Yeah, I think. Um, so it's set in Scandinavia, so Sweden, but also Finland, Denmark, even bits of Russia. You know that neck of the woods. 
northern Europe, far north of Europe, um, in the Victorian era. So it's up to you when in the Victorian. You can have it early Victorian or late Victorian. Um, and in the game you play, it's quite specific, the setting and the setup of it, isn't it? So in the game you play these people who've got what's called the sight. So you can see supernatural beings. And in the game, most of the supernatural beings, creatures of myth like trolls or, you know, fairies, ghosts, all those kind of things, can choose whether they're visible or not. But as people with the sight, you can see them all the time. That's the gist of it. And you are members of a thing called the Society, based in Uppsala in Sweden, where you have this castle, don't you, Mm. that you operate from sorting out supernatural problems and one of the kind of driving things behind it is the idea of the industrial revolution encroaching on the traditions uh, which kept the supernatural creatures at bay so for example you might have a forest where there's some an ash tree wife who's a creature that lives in the forest and the local villagers have always kind of respected her and this kind of thing. And then along comes a industrial forestry kind of, you know, company who wants to chop the forest down and make, you know, get a logging company, that kind of thing. And it upsets the supernatural equilibrium of things. And your job is to kind of try and sort that problem out. Some, sometimes the supernatural creature is villainous and needs dealing with. But sometimes it's misunderstandings, isn't it? And yeah. sometimes the, the humans are the real problem rather than the supernatural creature who's just become upset yeah. or disturbed by modern the modern world encroaching. And that's the gist of it, basically. It's as if the Brothers Grimm wrote Deliverance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is a bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the thing to say about it, I bought it as well, and I think I must have bought it. It's the same thing because I didn't invest in the um, uh, Kickstarter, but I got a package together. And it is a beautiful book, isn't it? That's yeah, what it is a beautiful book. Me to it. Yeah. And it's uh, based on the illustrations by Johan Egerkrans. Yeah. Yeah, it is based on a book of illustrations, isn't it? It's built around that. And the monsters are. Brilliant, aren't they? The, yeah. the illustrations are yeah. absolutely uh, fantastic. And what I recall from it is, um, you know, you, you rightly said that horror you can dial up and down, but it takes me. There is a nostalgic value to it because it reminds me of the Beaver Book of yeah. Horror. Yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. I've talked about this when we talked about uh, Dragon Warriors because I think there's a connection between Dragon Warriors. And Vason mm. in the way that it deals with monsters and the monstrous. Yes. Yeah. And that it is gothic, uh, hauntology, that yeah. kind of sense that it's uh, folksy horror. Yes. Yeah. For folksy horror. And it has things, none of the monsters are throwaway. I think that's what's good about it. None of the monsters are throwaway monsters. It doesn't do cannon fodder kobolds, does it? It's not that kind of game. It, every monster has its own background and mythologies and traditions and belief pe- beliefs people have about these things. And also, they all, all, most of them, I think, all of them, I think, most of them certainly, have like rituals. 
that you have to do to get rid of them. So there's certain rituals to banish them and that kind of thing, which you've got to kind of discover. So it's not, whilst there is fighting in it, it's not a fighty game as in, let's go and kill some monsters. It's not quite as straightforward as that. Yeah. Sometimes it's about negotiating with a monster or performing a ritual to banish the monster or appease it, something like that. So it's not just monster... It, Kind of is monster hunting, but it's not just hunting a monster and destroying it. Destroying it. Although you can have, there are some nasty monsters in it that yeah. need to be destroyed, but not all of them. Not all of them. Some, mm. some are more. They're more complicated than that, and that's what's entertaining about it. I know when we've played, we had our Sunday night group played it, didn't we? And that's what was interesting about it was it's not just a case of right. There's the monster. Let's go in and kill the thing. You know, because yeah. a lot of them can't be killed. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the monsters in it, if you hit them hard enough with swords and bullets, they might disappear into vapour, but a few days later they kind of come back. So yeah. you have to deal with it in a, a different way, really. And the, and the reason why we called Daniel Farson's Beaver Book of Horror, which was the grounding of mm. my love of monsters, <laughs> is that it treats them in a similar way with a straight path as though they are part of our yeah. uh, our existence as human beings. They kind of mm. coexist with us yes. and uh, yeah. we have to uh, deal with them. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, the, at the base of it, the six principles, and I think you covered some of them, haven't you, that um, it says that, you know, these monsters are neither good nor evil, um, that nature is dark and dangerous. Yeah. And uh, that Scandinavia is changing. And I think this is key to it that knowledge is key to success. So, mm. you, what you're trying to the investigation is trying to find that vulnerability, isn't it? Of the monster. Yeah. yeah. And uh, knowledge both ways as well both the knowledge, finding out about the monster and finding out the knowledge of what, what it wants and what it's doing and why is it upset. But equally, that knowledge that's been lost by modern society so modern society modern industrial Victorian society is dismisses that knowledge as nonsense, it's just nonsense why you're worrying about that but at its peril because of course by dismissing it the, the balance of the world is is altering Yeah, That's, so it's knowledge both ways isn't it? And the next two uh, principles are interesting when we come to look at it mechanically because it says that journey is part of the goal. Yeah. And we're in this together. So mm. you're not going to defeat this single handedly. Yeah. It requires yeah. all of your, uh, yeah. as a team, as a society, has to come together to uh, yeah. defeat it. Um, so this is speed rating. And when we do speed mm. rating, we've done a quick review of it. The next bit is just blind these rules. So you've got yeah. to pick out. Three. three highlights from the rules. Diffi it, it's difficult to do this because I do, and this will come across, may have already come across. I'm a huge fan, fan of the game. So it's difficult to distill it down to three rules that I like. And I guess it is the um, core rule set of really games, isn't it? That year zero engine. So yeah, a yeah. Lot of I mean, I like, yeah, there is, there is that, that overall before talk about three specific things I do like that freely existing the dice pool so it is that thing of you you have an attribute and a skill and that tells you how many d6 you roll and you roll 
handful of d6s and if you get a six you've succeeded that kind of thing yeah. sometimes you, more successes gives you extra things and that kind of stuff but that's the basic principle of it and it's it works very very well um i think and it's quite fluid and quite narrative i think it works well in this kind of setting and in this kind of context in the same way it does with tales from the loop yeah I think it gets a little more brutal and harsher when yeah. you're in a setting like Mutant yeah. Year Zero yeah. or Alien, yeah. where it becomes quite uh, and can get brutal. Un- and not unwieldy is the wrong word, but uh, I know what you mean. Tales from the Loop is very, it's a very simple version of it. Vason is there's a bit more to it, but it's still the simple end of it. I'm, I'm possibly less keen on the more complicated free league versions of it Did you see yeah. I think sometimes whenever I play a more complicated version of Free League I always think why have you put extra things in it works really well you know Vason's yeah. got, got combat in it it's got all sorts you can do anything with it it's really good contests like, yeah why have you made yeah. it complicated so yeah I know what you mean and I suppose as well it, it has Vason also has this thing that I like that it's quite it is quite structured as a game isn't it as you said you have this thing where as phases of play, doesn't it? So you're invited. Yeah. There's an invitation phase where the society gets a, a message at its castle to investigate something. Then you've got a preparation phase where you can prepare for the mystery. And then you've got a journey, haven't you, which is part of it, where you're invited to kind of improvise in the journey. Do you meet an old friend on the train or the boat? Or what? you take a book to read? What's that book that you're reading on the journey? And it's I, I like that because we've talked about this a lot in other podcasts journeys are always difficult in role playing yeah. games so it does it has this kind of structured thing before you get to the meat of the mystery it makes a feature of it it doesn't make yeah. it a bug it makes it that yeah. actually having a journey is part of the yeah and it puts it on the players as well rather than you is because what you say is right you're on this train it's going across Sweden to the other side of Sweden where the, the mystery is taking place what, what are you each going to do on this journey and you're allowed to kind of come up with something that you're doing, someone you meet, conversation you have with a stranger, anything like that. And that can have a mechanical impact later on, getting you extra dice yeah, and things like yeah. that. And that's great from a games master's point of view because it, it takes the pressure of the journey off you, puts it on them. <laughs> puts, it, puts it on them and it gives it a significance, doesn't it, that yeah. you can build up. Mm. And you're right, that structure, I think, is key to it. And I think it owes a certain debt to a previous speed rating game Monster of the Week. Yeah. In yeah, that it does yeah, build yeah. mysteries in a similar yeah. building blocks to Monster of the Week. Mm. Um, but it probably does it in um, a more, a, a less transparent, it's more tacit, isn't it? It's not like um, the cycles of something like Blades in the Dark. No, 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 it's not got that. No, it's, it's still role playing. It, it just does these phases of, yeah, yeah. Where you, you're still role playing within them. And I think the other key bit that it has, and, and it also apparent in uh, Monster of the Week, is that countdown, that yes. feeling that yeah, yeah. there is a momentum. That's why it works well in one shots, isn't it? Yeah. That yeah. you're moving towards yeah. something yeah. and it's going to get gradually more yeah. intense. Yeah, if you don't do, do something, something, this is going to happen and that's going to yeah. happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're yeah. still dodging the... Uh, I'm dodging the... Right, well, I'll tell you what, I, I think about this. I think the three rules that I particularly like about it are critical injuries. Okay. Um, the campaign rules, if I'm allowed to, that's kind of 
There's one key rule there, which is building your castle, campaigning or building your castle. And I think magic as well. Yeah. The magic system in it is, is quite entertaining. Okay. Yeah. Let's take those in turn then. Okay. First one, the critical rules. Yeah, so it has, it has critical injury. It has a critical injuries table. So it, it does the thing that a lot of free league games do where you have conditions. You have four conditions, mental conditions and four physical conditions. And when you when you take a fourth condition, you become broken. So you can either become physically broken or mentally broken. And then you have to roll on a critical injuries table. And that in itself is is nothing unusual. But what's unusual about Vasin is the top end of the critical tables, both mental and physical. So the, I think the top five or six, you roll a D66, and I think the top five or six, if you roll in the 60s, um, you take a serious life-threatening, it's really, a really serious. I mean, some of the lower ones will be life-threatening, but a proper nasty injury where you've got so many combat rounds to be, be healed, otherwise you're dead. Mental injuries, you've only got so many combat rounds until you're permanently insane. So, you know, life and death kind of thing. Like a near-death experience, isn't it? Yeah. Either way, either mentally or physically, a near-death experience. And what's interesting about it is, and it doesn't, it doesn't happen enough in the game. It doesn't happen enough in the game. But I think it happened to your character. Did it happen to your character when we played? If you pull through, you have a kind of benefit, don't you? Have a, yeah. have a, a, you get a sort of temporary, it might become permanent, but a temporary power because you've seen, you've been to the other side and come back. So you can see the future yeah. or you can talk to the dead and that kind of thing. It gives you, I think my character got a sense of prophecy, didn't he? And, uh, That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it gives you this thing where you can then, during the rest of the adventure, use that once to see the future or talk to the dead or this mm. kind of thing. Uh, and then when you get back to your castle, you make certain rolls and there's a chance you might keep that ability. And that, I think that's really good. Yeah. Because rather than just an unpleasant critical injury, you can actually get a benefit from it. You know, yeah. you've, you've got like with mental stuff, you've been to the brink of madness and come back from it. And within that, you've kind of got some kind of ability. An insight into the world. Yeah, you chair, you yeah. can become, I think things like you can become suddenly very charismatic. Because you, you're yeah. a changed person, because your mind's been broken, but you've come back in a different way, yeah. and I, I, I really like that. I think it's a really interesting rule that it's not just you've had a nasty injury; you will potentially get some benefit from it. It's character you know, building, character, yeah, character building. And from a role playing perspective, it's interesting. It's not just yeah, you've you've had a terrible injury and you walk with a limp, but you you can now yeah talk to the dead or. Yeah. yeah, see the other side or see see the future and that kind of thing. Which is really a really good a neat rule. I really like it, you know. Yeah. That is really good. And I do think that, that is one of its strengths, isn't it? That pay, playing it over a sustained period. I know that you do a lot of one shots from it, yeah. but yeah. there is value to doing a campaign. Yeah. Because your character does build up and uh, yeah. progress and become more interesting and deeper. Yeah. And it's not just arbitrary. It is actually built on your experiences, not only with the critical tables, but it, it might inform the way you choose your additional benefits and yeah. um, are, yeah. you, are, are you character yeah. fits. Um, yeah. And in, in a way, that, and, I mean, we're going to talk next about the campaign rules, but it is almost like two games in one. And uh, if you run it as a one shot, the campaign rules don't really figure at all. But then if you run it as a little campaign, it, it has a different 
element, like a bolt-on element to it, doesn't it, that yeah. gives it a different, not a different flavour, but sl- sort of more in-depth flavour to it that yeah. you don't quite get from a one Let's talk about those uh, campaign rules that you want to talk about into building up the castle mm. because it is a familiar thing from yeah. uh, free league games or yeah. year zero games. Yeah, it's a bit like the Mutant Year Zero, you have the arc, don't you, and you build yeah. it, but it's a similar idea that you have this castle Gillencrutz Castle, I think it's called, in uh, Uppsala. And after each adventure, you get experience points to spend on your character, but you also get some to spend on your castle. So as you progress, you can buy stuff for your castle. You can have it done up, basically. You can have a medical, a doctor's surgery put in, or a chapel, or an armory, or you can buy it. You can employ people, can't you? Like a gardener, uh, and all that kind of thing. And And the stages to it as well. So you you have to have... uh, it's ladders, isn't it? So yeah, yeah, you have to buy yeah, you have to early you, components. Yeah, you have to you buy one thing before you can get another. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that, that's exactly it. And and those things bring benefits, so that when you go on your next adventure, those things will help you. You know, so for example, if you buy the kind of doctor's stuff, the medical bit, when you get back, you do certain roles to see if you can shake off permanent mm-hmm. injuries. And it will help you do that because you've got that. Same with, I think a chapel helps you with your sanity and things like that. And even things outside the castle, I think you can spend it to get a tavern. And it's not that you own the tavern, but it becomes your tavern where you're the regulars. And that, again, benefits you with stuff. Because actually, I think alcohol, in, in it, the alcohol is does help mental conditions, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. It's the most realistic aspect of the game. You know, <laughs> actually, having a good old drink. Having a good old drink helps you get over but also uh, that thing with the tavern, uh, contacts and NPCs yeah, yeah. are important, aren't they? Yeah. So they give you a set of archetype contacts yeah. that you may have. Yeah, so you can upon. build up this castle. And when we played that little campaign with our Sunday group, people loved it. I, I read, yeah. made me laugh that we'd start, start the session and go, right, you've got some experience points from last time. I just sit back for 45 minutes well, where you decide whether to get a greenhouse with a garden or whether to, to go and get a chapel or whether, what about an armoury? What about a guard dog? What about this? What about that? Uh, I think part of the um, joy or pleasure from um, doing that was building in the preparation that we'd done mm. at the castle while on the journey yeah. and then calling on it when yeah. we were in the middle of the yeah. adventure and Realising how smart we were to have done yeah, it. Of course, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a pleasure, the ple- pleasing thing of, oh, look, are we clever? Yeah. 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 So that, those campaign rules are, I mean, that's the, the central thing with the campaign, building the castle. But A bit of a diversion, because I know that you're a fanboy for this, but I'm going to say that one of the drawbacks is it's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful book to, mm. to read. But in terms of a game book, that's where it falls short, I think. Yeah. It find you. It, I find it hard to find stuff mm. that you need in it because there's all kinds of different call light boxes and yeah. Um, so that 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 moment when you're doing the shopping list, part of the difficulty is it be better in a table or some something so I can get my head round. Uh, yeah, because I suppose, like you say, yeah, I've got the building blocks thing where you need one thing before you get another. Because you get overexcited, but oh yeah, I'll get yeah, let's get one of these. But I'm going. Oh no, I've got to have a. Mm. Uh, a lawn before I can have this. <laughs> get what? Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and I think that follows through on some of the other 
things. So when you're looking at character mm. things, it, you're kind of flicking through pages and yeah. Um, yeah, it is it is beautiful, but sometimes it's hard to find yeah. the stuff. But at least it's beautiful when you're flicking through it. Yeah, at least there is that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take point. And I'm easily distracted by the illustrations. <laughs> It's too beautiful. I can't focus on the rules. It's too beautiful. My eyes get drawn. Oh, that's good. It's so beautiful that uh, I've run it at various conventions. I never take it with me. I always take a tablet with a PDF on because I can't let it leave the house. It's too beautiful. I didn't consider buying two. Well, I can take it with me and keep it home. That's that's how lovely it is as a rule book. The quality of the paper, everything. Yeah, it's too far. Yeah, flicking through it now. (laughs) Okay, the third thing. Uh, The third thing is a magic system in it Um, because it's a very light touch magic system. Um, So the 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 Vesen have magical powers. Um, which they can inflict on people and it works as a kind of opposed roll. They have magic dice. They might have eight magic dice and they have to make an opposed roll with um, your observation skill or something like that. But I suppose what I like about it is the, the magic's quite... <sighs> on the one hand, it, it has things called like, like um, curses, I think it is where they're just a list of things that the Vesen may have afflicted a locality with. There's no rolling dice. There's nothing like that. It's just stuff that it never stops raining, that kind of thing. Mm. All the milk from the cows is sour, that kind of thing, which is quite adds to the atmosphere without actually giving you a load of things to roll. You know, it doesn't say, well, if it, if it rolls so much, then the milk's sour. It just is sour. Mm. It's, it, and that sounds a bit daft, really. But sometimes in some games, they get bogged down in the mechanics of magic. I mean, really, you want magic to be magic, don't you? Yeah. You know, well, we, we've said that before, haven't we? That, you know, by its very nature, magic breaks the game. So putting mechanics yeah. around it yeah. very often. So, and, and it has an attitude where it says magic that is applied to NPCs is the game's master's choice. So, for example, there's, there's one, uh, spell that you know you can curse afflict somebody with uh, parts of an animal's body so so if you donkey's ears or something like that the troll might curse you to have donkey's ears and if it's an npc it just says just just do it yeah it just happens there's no rules for the mp the npc just it just happens yeah or not up to the games master and that is quite liberating strangely liberating where you think yeah because it's there's nothing worse is there than yeah you know, do trying to do something like that for atmosphere, and they make the saving throw. You yeah. know, it's not that kind of game. It's it, it gives you some advice about magic and says, you know, that it's all about the story. The players should never be subjected to things without having to make rolls. But the place where you are and the NPCs and all that kind of thing, they're just part of the story. And whilst they do have statistics for NPCs, you know, if you get into a fight with an NPC, they're going to roll dice. But in some senses keep the NPCs out of the mechanics so that you can create that atmosphere. It is yeah. quite good advice. And the magic system is quite light touch in the way it works. And also, the, the magic in it is a lot of fun. So I ran a one-shot a couple of years ago where there's, there's one where um, they've cursed the food so that the villagers are eating slug and snail frog pies and 
horrible stuff, but they think it's delicious. And when the party gets there, there some of them were lured into it and started to eat this stuff, and others could see it for what it was, you know. And it's yeah. kind of harmless in a way, but it's great for the atmosphere and the incident of the thing, you know. Yeah. That these these fairy folk are playing cruel pranks on the villagers, making them eat horrible stuff. In, under the illusion that it's delicious you and know. it's in that perfect place that I really enjoy in terms of fantasy and the fantastic and when we talked about Leoness before and we've talked about uh, Dragon Warriors mm. it is that world isn't it that world um, where those kind of things are possible and I think you're right putting mechanical elements around it remove something from them yeah. so yeah. just being liberated by yeah. having a story just as a side point as well, the way that uh, these Year Zero engine games, you uh, have a light touch with NPCs, I really like as well, because yeah. you can yeah. quietly, quickly create mechanics for an NPC without trying too hard, can you? Yeah, Just by yeah, yeah. Choosing yeah. the dice pool that they've got yeah. and the level they are. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, because it does, doesn't take, uh, yeah, if you, you end up getting some conflict with a, with a casual NPC, you you can easily just come up with, you know, and it gives you a little table of, you know, the kind of dice a average policeman would have when it comes to combat. You go, right, okay, that's what they've got, you know, yeah. simple as that. Yeah. I think in general, you know, I'm a fan of the uh, system. It, it accommodates lots of different approaches, doesn't it? I think during the campaign, I uh, was riding coaching horses yeah. Yeah. through a group of cultists yeah. as a manoeuvre. And oh right, okay. How do we sort this out? And it kind of dealt with it, didn't it? In a yeah. way, yeah. It just dealt with it in that you just made a roll, and for every six you got, I said you knocked one of the cultists yeah. over. Yeah, that, that dead, dead easy, dead dramatic, kind of dramatic and quite exciting the way it works because it is so simple, you know. Yeah, and in terms of uh, we have to. Look at a duff one. Can you bring yourself to? I can't. I can't. I don't I think there's a duff rule. I think oh. it's it's brilliant. I can't think of one. Trying to think of it. You, you put this test to me to think of a duff rule. I can I think of a duff rule? I don't think there's. I, I don't think there's maybe a, the rule book, like you say, it's a beautiful rule book, but occasionally you can get a little bit lost in it. Yeah, that's yeah, it. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think the archetypes are very strong, mm. and. Um, I think it'd be good to have some more um, members of the society because, um, yeah. you, you know, I think uh, I played um, a groundsman who was quite lascivious, wasn't he? Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. Hunter turned groundsman, hadn't he? Fortune turned Genki. <laughs> <laughs> and I based him on, uh, you know, like Lady Chatterley's lover. Mellows. Mellows. You womanizer, wasn't it? It was, yeah. <laughs> What's into any bar and uh, yeah, all of, yeah. But it's uh, hard. It's hard to think of. A, can you think of a duff rule? Uh, no, a bit of it. I think it is an example of a game which is perfectly formed yeah. to do exactly what it does. What it yeah, do. I think you're right. That's that is it, isn't it? That if you tried to move it into a different setting or a different context, you might find it doesn't quite work. But there's a perfect kind of connect... Yeah, it just works perfectly with that Victorian Gothic setting and the right level of mechanics to 
create that world. Yeah. Two things sit perfectly side by side, I think. We should say as well that uh, recent supplements have created it for um, Britain and Ireland. Yeah, there's a Mythic Britain, isn't there? Mythic Britain, yeah. Which is good as well. That's good as well by Graham, Graham Davis, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. He's been on. He's been on. Friend of the podcast. You have to say that. Yeah. Friend of the podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And uh, that's that's attractive again, isn't it? Because um, again, mm. coming back to, uh, I keep saying, you know, that is the kind of world, the fantastic uh, world that I like to inhabit in uh, role playing games yeah. and. That's the kind of stuff that I and like. And it's to good. Make, it's yeah. good as well because the mythic, the mythic Britain thing demonstrates it, and Vase the Vase and Rule demonstrates it. That it, it's not some of the advice it gives you. It doesn't expect you to necessarily stick to what's in the rule book in terms of the monsters. You know, the monsters yeah. are quite fluid in as much as myth and legend. You know, there might be three or four names for these monsters in different parts of the country, and in different parts of the country they might have slightly different mythologies attached to them in terms of what they do and don't do and whether they're good or bad that kind of, they've got that kind of thing in it and it also gives some great advice one of my favourite pieces of advice on the Victorian setting where it basically says don't worry about the history if you want a typewriter in you can have a typewriter in even if typewriters haven't really been invented to, until about 18 whatever if you want if you want a typewriter just put a typewriter in don't worry about it yeah which is great great advice because it doesn't actually affect the general sense of it but you know it's vaguely yeah. vaguely victorian <laughs> yeah it's like a fictionalized version of the world yeah and it does talk about that. it says this is a, it is a fictionalized victorian setting it's your victorian setting so don't worry too much about the advice is really strong as well, isn't it? Just to pick up that point. Mm. The advice to games masters and players is really strong and that idea of creating a sensory experience for players, really focusing in on yeah. Yeah, all yeah, those yeah. elements and not to forget that yeah. that is part of the atmosphere building. Yeah. We're talking about monsters. We need to have a monster off before we finish. Oh, a monster off? Go on. Have you prepared for this? Just I, to beat me. I, a Vesin monster off. I am prepared, but I think if there's any game, mm. now, but bear in mind, I, I've only been playing this. Yeah. If there's any game that upholds our idea of having a prime directive, which means that <laughs> only yeah. one person in the, yeah, yeah. Uh, in your group should own a copy of it. Yeah. Because the whole essence of it depends yeah. upon games masters knowing the secrets. I, I suppose maybe you've hit on I mean, this is perhaps unfair, but maybe you've hit on the duff thing, that it isn't a game you can all really own. No. Because it, you're right, it does hinge on what's going on here and how do we sort it. And if you've all read the rules, well, you know, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So maybe that is the slight problem with it. I remember you uh, looking in horror <laughs> people on Twitter yeah. showing that they'd all got the adventure supplement. Everyone's got Mythic Britain. Everyone's got it. You're just like, right, well, there's no point playing it then, is there? Everyone's got the adventures. Everyone, the kickstart, everyone backed it. So everyone's got it. All right, well, forget it then. Yeah. <laughs> so you, playing it. You're not going to be turning up in your neighbourhood running it because yeah. chances are people have 
But let's face it, people have got it, but it's on the bookshelf, isn't it? They're not, they're not really, but... Yeah, people don't. And I, I'm, I mean, I played, uh, and I'll be running in a few weeks, the Winter's Tale from the Seasons of Mystery. And I played it at Grogme, and I'd had it, but I hadn't read it. Yeah. I did have it. I hadn't read Everybody it. Everybody just so, sort of said the illustration. Ooh. Yeah, right. yeah I must, must read that. But yeah, you're right. And I've not read the other Seasons of Mystery ones either. I've only, so I only know one in case the others come up. You know, so I played it and then I can run it. So I've limited myself to a monster that I've encountered. Go on. And that is the lindworm. The lindworm. The acid spitting lindworm. The great reptilian dragon like beast. Mm. And that what what I like about it is like a lot of these, is it has its own kind of quirks and yeah things about yeah. it. And um, there are different as you say, different flavours of the lindworm depending on region. They, yeah. Some some of them may be benign lindworms. They might yeah, yeah. For, you know give favours to the local population. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Um, the local population yeah. do not want to to go mm. because of the powers that it gives them. Yeah. But also the fact that if you consume the lindworm, mm. you gives you some of the powers. Yeah, yeah, if you eat one, if you kill one and eat, cook the cook the meat of the lindworm, yeah. So it's entirely possible to meet a population of people <laughs> who've all eaten You've lindworm. all eaten some lindworm, lindworm. yeah, they killed one and all and carved it up at a big feast, yeah. And they're spitting acid, yeah. <laughs> turning invisible. Yeah, yeah. And causing havoc. There's an idea there, isn't there? There is. There's an idea. And that is... Uh, Precisely what's good about it, isn't it? That yes. all of these monster descriptions, yeah. Yeah. they have great. Yeah, and it will give you it will give you a few scenario hooks with each monster, but it's very very easy to come up with others based on what each monster describes. Yeah, the, mon- the monster I would pick my th- my favourite monster. This is perhaps a bit odd. Is the troll right? The troll because I like the fact that whilst it does talk about trolls in the mountains looking like traditional trolls, kind of monstrous trolls. Um, it also talks about trolls that live amongst people. So uh, the trolls in, in uh, Vesen are, uh, and in Scandinavian myth, look, look human. Because mm-hmm. I think you encountered some in the first adventure where yeah. sometimes there's a giveaway. So you might see that, they've, you know, I think in one of the taverns there was a, a woman who owned the tavern who was a troll and you saw a tail poking out yeah. from under a long dress or they might have stubby little horns that they've hidden with their hair that kind of thing and they could do magic and all that kind of stuff but I like the fact it's very very subtle that you know you could be talking to a monster who owns a shop somewhere in a village but they're actually a troll yeah you know who have magical powers I quite like that it's opposite I suppose the lindworm the lindworm is at one extreme isn't it and it's yeah. a monstrous dragon type monster can't really ignore it and yet I like the troll that's good because it's very very subtle you know you're looking for a monster but it's a very subtle monster it doesn't necessarily look like a monster and it lives in harmony with people you know it might be people that have upset the monster the yeah. troll's been upset by people the trolls could be in league with the lindworm <laughs> the lind- yes they, so let's, could let's, be a village full of trolls who've eaten a lindworm there you go yeah there you yeah. go let's <laughs> you can have that one I'll call it a score draw <laughs> so that's Vason mm. uh, speed rated and 
We're very positive about it. We are very positive. It is a very, very good game. It's one of my favourite. Definitely my, my top five. You know, you, you do your top five. It's definitely in there because it is a, it is a fantastic, perfectly formed game, I would say. And what uh, strikes me about it is that it's not one of those because we both do this. We have sudden enthusiasms for a game. Mm. It came out in 2020. You got yep. it during lockdown. Yeah. You played a lot of it. Yeah. And your enthusiasm for it isn't diminished. You still. No, that's play. true. That, and that is a test, isn't it, of a good game that my enthusiasm hasn't diminished. I would run it. I would run it again. I'm running it in a couple of weeks and looking forward to running it. Yeah. Because it is a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Mm. Thanks a lot for that. Okay. Goodbye. The Save for Half podcast covers old-school gaming and the modern games inspired by them. Listen in to hear about games from the 70s and 80s as well as their modern descendants. You can download episodes wherever podcasts are found on iTunes, Google, and other fine podcast distributors. You should also check them out on saferhalf.com or email them at saferhalfpodcast at gmail.com. I'll get me caught! Okay, we're heading towards the storeroom door we're mm. putting our furry jackets on ready to go out into the wilds of Bolton <laughs> and uh, face whatever monsters are out there members of the society but uh, as we're doing that um, we're just carrying on the chat aren't we so this mm. is our closing time chatter Blythe what's occupying your thoughts at the moment well um, Christmas gifts it's you oh know, yeah post Christmas post Christmas podcast has he been did he come he, he did well he didn't really I got some money and spent it on gaming you know not quite the same is it you can't you can't trust you can't trust family with role playing can you? you can't say to them oh I'd like this or that this is going to look at you like you're mad I uh, faced the wrath of my family this year they were mm-hmm. very uh, they're full of scorn at the fact that. I bought myself quite a few presents. They thought that it was... I, I, I bad got, form or something. Bad form. Bad I think I tipped it too far. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, sometimes you kind of think, well, yeah, I'll get myself this. Yeah, you wrap this up for me. You can give me that. Yeah. They, they started to kind of see through it and get a bit... <laughs> He's gone mad. Like he's got more presents than anybody. Exactly. Yeah. You've got more presents than anybody, and they're all presents you want because you bought them. Whereas we've got less presents. Some of them are things we don't want. Yeah, fewer, fewer presents. Fewer, sorry. Yeah, fewer. <laughs> Here we are, pedant. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Because you can't. You can't trust. You see, I I find over the years people would say, "Oh, what do you want for Christmas?" And if you if you say something gaming based, they look like they look like yeah yeah what. What? It's not worth bothering, is it? No. But anyway, I've got some Christmas money and I bought myself something I have um, had my eye on for a bit. I bought it from the, the excellent Leisure Games, you know. Yeah. Can you do that? Are we allowed to do it? Yeah, we're, we're allowed to not mention paying us, are they? No, not paying us. There you go. <laughs> I always like to think Fabio works there, packed it for me, but he apparently doesn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't do that aspect. If he did, I'd order loads of Powered by the Apocalypse just to annoy him. To <laughs> just to him. Anyway, um, I bought the boxed set of the Dungeon Crawl Classics Lankmar. Oh, I bought that. And it's very, very good. It's it's very good, but it raises an issue. It raises a bit of an issue. Right, what's this? The, well, it's it's great. It's a box set, Lankmar. Um, it's got some rule tweaks for Dungeon Crawl Classics. It's got big map. It's got background stuffing. It was a very nostalgic experience. And I know DCC does play on the nostalgia thing, doesn't it? 
but it's a very nostalgic experience because it's a long time since I got something like that with a map in and a city. It felt like buying Thieves World for the first time. Yeah. It felt like back in the 80s game, Thieves World, there was a certain beauty to it, you know, where you think, wow, look, there's a huge map of a city and there's all these different streets and all this stuff in it, you know. And what you what you realise reading it, and this sounds stupid because it's not, it's not something people forget, really, but in a strange way, you, you can forget it. How influential Fritz Lieber's concepts and writing out to role-playing. Yeah. So people often talk about Moorcock, they talk about Tolkien, of course, that kind yeah. of thing. But Fritz Lieber, we read about Lankmar, and it's so influential on the way role-playing games operate. Yeah. Thieves' guilds, yeah. a fighter and a thief. Um, the idea that they work for sorcerers, you know, they are patrons, they get all go on jobs, all those kind of things. You read it and think, God, it's such an influential and, thing. And it was so close to it, wasn't it, as well? In the gaming convention in the 70s, he was there and mm. uh, friends with uh, Ken St. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. Very, very influential. You really, it brings it, I suppose it, it's not that you've forgotten that, but when, when I've got it, I, it reminded me of it, I suppose. But I suppose one of the, the issue it raises is, it's only really brilliant if you ran it as a little campaign. Right. When it comes to like a one shot, I think it'd be a lot of fun, but it would be missing something because the whole city thing is a campaign. Yeah. You know, so it has like uh, tables and stuff in to create a, a district. So it has tables for street names and in businesses and who lives here and who lives there. And you roll it on the table and it t- says, create a little area for yourself within, within Lankmar, that kind of thing. You think it, it would, it's great. You know, it's really good. But when, 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 yeah. So, you know, I might run some DCC Lankmar for virtual grog meet, but it will be a one shot and it probably won't give you the absolute flavour of it, if you know what no. I mean. You know, when I read it, I thought, this is fantastic. And then I immediately thought, when am I going to fit this in? Yeah. You know. If only we could conquer time and space. Mm. Now, this is, uh, do I need to stage an intervention again? Because this is your enthusiasm for DCC. Yeah, you don't like it, do you? It's suspicious of No, it. no, well, it's yeah, not. You seem looking you, at me you, like. You, you're yeah. kind of building me up and you kind of, yeah. to bring yeah. on board, you're onboarding me. Well, no, I'm not onboarding you. I don't care. I want the prime directive. One word I'm going to say to you. Go on. Numenera. <laughs> is it a Numenera or is it a Vason? This uh, DCC obsession that you get. Yeah, well, time will tell. Time will tell. When we do review of the year at the end of the year, we'll see, won't we? Yeah. We'll see. We'll find out. You can't tell. You, you can never tell, can you? No. Gaming works like that. You you do it as well. Don't, oh, don't yeah. make out it's just me. <laughs> you do it as well. Everyone does it. You get a new game and you, you love it and you love it. And will you carry on loving it? Or will it ultimately be one that you go, yeah, I've run a bit of that, but I'm, I'm not sure. I'd go back to it. I'm going to go back to it. Or yeah. you might go back to it, but you don't have the urge to go back to it. But it's a time element again, isn't it? Mm. I uh, managed to resist... I, I rolled my saving rolls <laughs> throughout yeah. 2022. Yeah. The urge was strong yeah. to buy Blade Runner and do the <laughs> Kickstarter. Right? <laughs> but I managed to do it. I managed to yeah, resist yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I was the same. I resisted. Yeah. I resisted. As you know, I'm a massive Blade Runner fan. Yeah. I love the yeah, yeah. film. I still have the 
box, the VHS box that mm. I bought at significant expense when, mm. when I could. Uh, I've got, I've got it. I still love it. I still watch um, that uh, first movie. I love it. But I resisted because I just thought, don't fall into the trap of another free league. It's a Twilight 2000. I think I actually talked about this. It's saying, yeah. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to resist it. I'm going to resist it. And I did. Until. Twilight, Twilight 2000, which a lot of people bought. I haven't seen it run at a convention yet. No. Funny that, isn't it? Yeah. Strange thing. Anyway, go on. Yeah. And, I, and I worried that it would be the same thing. And, you know, that feeling of beyond what you could do within Blade Runner what else could it offer yeah yeah it's the limitations of it I think it's the like we've said about Alien I think Alien's a great game the Free League Alien game's great but they do feel there's slight limitations on what people would what you could do with it but also also what people would expect from it I mean this is the thing with Blade Runner isn't it yeah. you might be able to do other things with it but People would expect to be hunting replicants. Yeah, if you're not chasing Roy Batty in his underpants, right? Really, e- the top exactly. of the department. Exactly. Exactly. Well, as soon as the bong of the end of the year went, my resolve broke. And over on the Discord channel, we have like a bring and buy channel. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one of the Grog Squad was offloading the Blade Runner stuff. Well, I'm broke and I bought it. And I thought initially, <laughs> you did what? You muttered that then. What did you do? <laughs> I bought it. Bought you bought it. Yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> first, first of all, I thought, right, I'll get the rule book. And so I, I, I'll, I'll go on, I'll have the mm. rule book. But the dice were there. So mm. you need the dice. Get the dice. And what do you always say? Games Master Screen. screen. You've got to get always games. get the Games Master Screen. screen. Always get that. I got that. I asked, I asked for that. Go on, I'll get it and see what it's like. <laughs> and. Uh, it, it, he gave me the price and he'd included the starter set. I didn't want the starter set, but by that point I thought, well, I might as well get the starter set. <laughs> so I've ended up with a whole kit and caboodle of blade. So we were resisting last year, suddenly on the stroke of 12, you got everything. You got everything. <laughs> no, point, Every- no point resisting then, what's the real? <laughs> so you've got that to look forward to, or have you? That's well, like, that's like giving up, that's like giving up smoking. And then on the stroke of New Year, after a year of not smoking, opening a packet of fags to celebrate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not only opening a packet of like smoking them all at once. All at once. <laughs> but it's only so Benson and Edges and going for them, chain smoking them all at once, one after the other. What are you doing that for? I'm celebrating, giving up. I didn't buy this game, it did really well. What have you done? I bought it. <laughs> I look forward to playing it though. Yeah. Sign of things to come for 2023. <laughs> <laughs> Resistance is useless. It is useless, yeah. You might as well just succumb to it. <laughs> See you later. See ya. There isn't another bit. As I record this, King Charles and the Queen Consort Camilla are visiting Bolton Town Hall to celebrate its 150-year anniversary. I like to think that they're supping on summer fruit cordial, taken from the storeroom where it's been for 150 years, so they can wash down their pasty on a balm cake. God bless them. Thank you to Jim for being the guest on the podcast. I really enjoyed revisiting Movie Drome. I hope that you did too. I recorded this discussion prior to Jim having significant surgery to treat cancer. 
all of us here at the Grognard Files wish him the very best as he convalesces. Get well soon, Mr Moon. I've started a substack following the lead of superspad Dominic Cummings. Substack is a new form of blogging which combines e-mither and the usual blog functions. I'm going to use it for my thoughts on subjects that are only tangentially related to the subject of gaming. The first one included some recommendations of books that are not RPG supplements, but look like RPG supplements. I'll put a link in the notes. It's a bit less like Dominic Cummings and more like Meaningless Gubbins. A new year and a new commitment to return to the outstanding zine project that's been ticking over ever since the novel virus period. In reality, due to all the other things that are going on, it's unlikely that the project will be revived until summer. I'll keep you informed and involved as things progress. The best way of keeping up with the various Grognard Files developments is to sign up to our Discord server. I know that people find it difficult sometimes to navigate around the various channels and it's hard to follow some of the various chains of discussion on Discord but it's worth persevering because I find it a great source of ideas, recommendations and a friendly community atmosphere. It's hard to jump on a train when it's moving but if you'd like to give it a try drop me a line and I'll send you a link and help you on board. Listeners, members of the Grog Squad, support this podcast and the various projects that we do by throwing a tip in the beret. It seems even more special now, given all the pressures that we're feeling and the increased cost of living. Thank you to everyone who's ever supported us. It's really appreciated. We have had some new patrons join us since October, so here's a shout out and thanks for making this work. Joining the armchair adventurers with a comfy armchair and a fancy poof is Andrew Frank, Howard Fernhead, Robert Compton, Guy Phillips and Tom Martins. Welcome and thank you. At the sofa so good level, I like to give a virtual gift from a table from a game under discussion. I'll roll a dice, apparently at random, and pick from the upgrade facilities of the Vasing Castle base. Okay, so first is James Knight, and he gets a pigeon loft. Michael Kerwin, a seance parlour. Ryan Skeets, oh, a difference engine. Andrew Mullington, a forgotten gallery. Geoffrey Hinckley, self-flagulation tools. Hmm. Dan Alexander, an occult library. Dave Dow, the annals of the society. Shane Whelan, a carp pond. Lucas Alvin, a treasure chamber. Jonathan Turner, a gymnasium. Bill Mize, a dungeon. And last but not least, Don Parry gets a weapons corridor. Thanks everyone, and thank you for listening. If you like what we do, please pass it on. And this year, why not email people that you haven't played with in a while? 
you never know what might happen. Until next time, when we get bad with a double D. Adios, amigos. <laughs>